Hello, and welcome to episode 27 of the Medical Device Success podcast and videocast. I am Ted Newell, your host, and I'm also the host of the MedTech Leaders Community, and I'll tell you about that in just a minute. The title of today's episode is Preparing for Virtual Presentation and Communication Success with Richard Goring, Director of Bright Carbon. And the title of this episode is important because success is not just about presentations. Presentation technique is important, and the components of the presentation are important, but it's also about communication. Bright Carbon is a presentation design agency that has worked with life science companies of all sizes, from small startups to multi-billion dollar corporations. This will be an excellent presentation, especially in the video cast because we have a lot of slides involved in this. And the video cast is available in the MedTech Leaders community. So more about MedTech Leaders community. Our purpose is to bring together MedTech executives and marketing and sales professionals to help each other by sharing best practices, ideas, solutions, and encouragement. And we support this with a robust series of live subject matter events in the community. For example, right now we have over seven hours of expert advice on going virtual in this virtual world. You can learn more about the MedTech Leaders community at medtechleaders.mn.co. Now, let's get together with Richard Goring to learn more about executing virtual presentation and communication success. Richard, it's great to have you here. Thanks for participating in this podcast and videocast. Thanks so much, Ted. Really appreciate it. Looking forward to it. Now, I think this will be very interesting. And as I told you in our preparatory meeting, that we've covered some individual components of virtual meetings and things that are important to help people with better virtual interaction, better, better virtual events, and so on and so forth. But we haven't like put it all together in one picture and there's a lot, I think there's a lot of things and nuances that we missed. So we're going to cover that today, I'm sure. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so um, just tell us a little bit about yourself and then a little bit about Bright Carbon. Yeah, sure. So my name is Richard Goring. I'm a director at Bright Carbon. We're a specialist e-learning and presentation design agency. And we love to help people to create more effective presentations. And that's usually through visuals. So visuals, diagrams, animations that explain and reinforce your messages rather than the traditional death by PowerPoint that everyone gets subjected to. And then just being able to share really cool techniques because PowerPoint is this fantastically powerful program that allows you to do all sorts of things. But, you know, it could be Google Slides or it could be Storyline or Prezi or any of these other tools as well. It's about you thinking about what's your story, what's your message and how you're best communicating that, which is perhaps even more important now with this online world that everyone is being subjected to. And what's your role there? I'm a director, so I run uh, lots of our training sessions and do lots of uh, kind of sharing of different content and things like that. Okay. Okay. Very good. Now, when we look at going virtual, especially in the medical technology business, because it, I think it has a bigger impact on us than it has on many other industries in that the guidances that we have for access to doctors, nurses, hospitals, clinics, doctor's offices are pretty severe, especially in the United States, maybe in other countries, due to guidances. And it basically comes down to they don't want somebody going from practice to practice to practice as you would in a traditional selling uh, situation or hospital to hospital to hospital and possibly carrying something around like a virus. So the guidances are to discourage uh, sales and marketing people from being in these environments. So we're forced to go virtual. Now we look at this as a downer. What do you see as opportunities in this virtual world? 
Well, I think there are lots, really, because you've got the ability to connect with people very quickly, very easily, which is great. I think that things can be a lot more efficient, potentially online as well. You, of course, lose some of the, the interactions, some of the relationship building in a way. But I think as people get more used to it on, on all sides, it'll become a lot more uh, natural and people will feel much more comfortable with it. But you've also got this kind of great opportunity here to be able to connect with a great many more people much more easily much more fluidly as well to respond to them when they are available rather than to try to book something and then things are cancelled because of clinics and whatnot so I think there are lots of opportunities with online meetings but often that means online presenting as well and so you think oh we've got to do everything completely differently and that's that may not be the case actually I think that if you were to really look at it, online meetings don't have to be significantly different from what you've always done. It's not a, a massive kind of world-changing thing. You know, you're probably using a, a Zoom, a Teams, a WebEx, something like that already for internal meetings. It's just now flipping it so that it's, you know, externally facing meetings as well. You have the technology, you have the setup. That doesn't need to change too much. What you do need to do is think about the way that you are actually interacting with people. And I think that that can really be very different because you're not there in person. It's much more difficult to kind of read the room and get reactions from people. It's not as easy to be able to share something physically, for example, because that's that's virtually impossible now. And so the way that you are interacting with people when you're in a meeting environment, I think, is different. And that's something that you need to consider. In fact, I thought it was probably worth just spending a couple of minutes showing you some of the differences that, that we at Bright Carbon see really between the traditional in-person presentation versus online. And if you're on the video cast, maybe just share a couple of example visuals with you as well so that you can get a sense of maybe what the differences could be. So I'm going to okay, just so share. Before we do that, one thing I, one thing I would point out is that one opportunity is to be better than anybody else at doing this. Yeah. You know, because a lot of people don't practice, they don't prepare. And in a virtual situation, I think it only exaggerates and amplifies that particular problem, the level of unpreparedness and so on. Whereas if you're prepared, you could really shine. So one opportunity is to be good at using these different tools. So yes, go ahead. Let's move on to we're going to talk about some of the critical communication techniques and uh, one in a virtual meeting for good engagement and so on, please. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Perfect. So, yeah, when it comes to uh, presenting and kind of engaging with people, I think that really there are a couple of a couple of different things that you need to consider. So. What's really critical here is that, you know, a typical face-to-face -face presenting environment is really made up of three core things. You've got a presenter, you've got their slides, and of course, normally you have an audience that's sat there with you. And the same thing, to be honest, is pretty much true for a huge keynote presentation, a smaller breakout presentation, a small meeting room presentation, or it's true over a you know, laptop in a coffee shop or in a clinic or something like that. It's all kind of the same core three things there. And because the presenter is there with the audience in person, things like presence and charisma and body language can really come into play. Now, the presenter in this environment can do all sorts of things. They can interact with slides. They can point and direct attention. You know, the presenter is typically near the slides, or at least they should be. And so the audience can look in one place and see both the presenter and their slides at the same time. It's all in the same field of view, which is great. The presenter is also in the same place as the audience, so they can get a sense of how they're being received. You know, they can relax by looking for friendly faces in the crowd. They can change their pacing if they sense the audience is a bit bored, and they can also interact with the audience as well, which is great. And then you consider the fact that, you know, you're all in the same place, and it's probably pretty obvious, but it does have implications. Because your audience is in the same room as you as, or the presenter, social conventions come into play. So most people in any environment where you're with them wouldn't be you know, so rude, if you like, that they would get up and leave from the front row. And although the audience may tune in and out occasionally, they are there and they'll typically stay there. 
And then also the impact of all of this is really a bit different in a huge theatre or a small meeting room. You know, the, the, the people are with each other. That's the critical thing. You know, if you're doing online meetings, people maybe will be all over the place. You know, they're all in their own kind of separate little offices or kitchens or dining rooms or whatever it happens to be. And so now with an in-person environment, you've got everyone together in the room and that means that they can feed off each other, your audience, you know, so laughter is infectious, implores is infectious, energy is infectious. And if you tune out, but everyone else laughs, you probably tune back in again. And that's really something unique to being in the room that you can draw on as a presenter. And so those are some of the critical considerations that you would have like when you're in person, but this new online presentation environment means that, you know, some of that changes. It changes some of those fundamental things about how presentations work. And so as you think through some of the differences, you start to get a sense of what you might need to do differently if you're moving your presentations online. So for an online presentation, you again have those same three elements, the presenter, the slides, the audience. But now, of course, things look very different. So the presenter might be presenting from a stage and being streamed worldwide, or they might be presenting from their kitchen table. The audience might be thousands of people scattered across the globe, or a few people each working from home. And the slides are shown on a screen, which is the same, but that's anything from a large display to more usually a laptop or a phone. And so with that, you've got these major differences. You know, the presenter is no longer in the room with their audience. So presence becomes a lot more difficult to convey. And even the most commanding speaker lacks gravitas on a small window on a tiny screen somewhere in the corner of your laptop, which really doesn't work very well. Presenters also can't easily interact with their slides when you're presenting online. And anyway, you know, they're just displayed separately from them in all but the most professional of setups. So there's no real way to point out stuff that's going on. And that means that the audience, if you're doing both screens and video, is left looking back and forth from the presenter to the slide, to the presenter to the slide. And there's this inherent tension in terms of attention when you're trying to get people to focus on any one thing. Now, things are different with smaller, more intimate online presentations. So if you are just speaking to a single clinician or her team or something, you know, there's only a couple of people there. But for any online presentation with a reasonably sized audience, the logistics mean that you pretty much need to mute the audience. Otherwise, you get the noise of coffee pots or phone ringing, or we've all heard stories of things that are significantly worse. And, you know, right. you get the idea. <laughs> and so you've got this kind of setup where the presenter can't really interact with the slides they're really finding it difficult to interact with the audience because you can't hear anything but their own voice many people find that really unnerving the fact that there's no sense of feedback at all because that that feedback loop is pretty much broken which is problematic and because the presenter can't hear or see the audience easily your audience will probably feel a bit liberated, to be honest. You know, they can behave however they want. You know, if someone is working from home on their laptop, a presenter is competing for attention with with almost anything. I mean, online shopping, news on coronavirus, sports, celebrity gossip. I mean, everything. Now, some online platforms will reveal who's focused on a different window, but it's anonymous and it really doesn't stop anyone. So the bar to retain attention is much higher when presenting online. And finally, if the audience is in a thousand different places and on mute, they can't feed off each other's energy. So if someone tunes out, they will likely stay tuned out. You know, laughter or applause or, you know, interesting points and whatnot that people raise or gasp at can't bring other people back. As right. I said, things are a little bit different, maybe in a really small online meeting room where, you know, a few people can all stay unmuted. They can talk, they can respond. And I think we'll probably talk about the logistics of that in a little while. But even then, you know, the shortage of screen real estate makes it really hard for your audience to participate freely when a presenter is talking because they'll probably have slides and they'll be up and stuff. And so you, again, can't feed off the audience's energy quite as much. So that's kind of what what I'd see as some of the major differences, some of the things that you really need to consider when you're moving your presentations and your meetings online. Sounds like a pretty big challenge. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it is. It's like on the face of it, maybe not, but it is a different way of doing things. And that's the, the kind of thing that you really need to consider. Right, right. Wow. Okay. So we've got this um, big challenge 
you know, what's different about face-to-face versus a virtual world. Mm-hmm. So what are we going to do about it? You know, what are, for example, some of the basics for a good virtual studio, since many of the people that would be listening to this are probably going to be making presentations from their home office. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So you, you need to consider a couple of key things. Um, and actually, all of those things really boil down to two factors, I think. One is about eliminating distractions for your audience so that it's really easy for them to engage. And the other is comp- creating compelling content so that you're actively engaging rather than them kind of being distracted by other things. And I thought, actually, let's jump back to the video uh, once again. I wanted to show you very briefly something that you're probably all quite familiar with. You may have seen it by now, um, which is the viral clip of Professor Robert Kelly being interrupted by his delightful children when on a very important Zoom call with the BBC a few years ago. This is it. Scandals happen all the time. The question is, how do democracies respond to those scandals? Uh, and what will it mean for uh, for the wider region? I think one of your children has just walked in. I mean, shift, shifting, shifting sands in the region, do you think relations with the North may change? Um, I would be surprised if they do. The, um, pardon me. My apologies. <laughs> What is this going to mean for the region? My apologies. North, um, so, I mean, he's facing exactly the same situation that, you know, pretty much everyone is nowadays. You know, everyone's pretty much relying on home office, as you said. And sometimes that's a dedicated office, and that's kind of great. But more often than not, it is, it's a bit makeshift. It's for those who have recently, you know, having to, to start working from home. And so ensuring that you have that right setup, as you said, that kind of virtual studio to attend, but also critically to host meetings is an absolute must. So there are a few different things that you could and should consider with all of that, I think. So one of the interesting things to consider is, I think, first and foremost, the critical thing, which is not at all obvious, is your internet connection. Because the speed that you're connecting to the internet, the, the pipe that you're connecting to everyone else is the only way that you're going to be able to do it. And if you've got really poor bandwidth and you're trying to do video, then you are going to be stuttering for people. And that's, that's just terrible. People will switch off immediately. And so check your internet speed where you are going to be doing the presenting from. And there's a couple of reasons for that. So if you are using Wi-Fi, for example, which realistically most people are at home, and you look at your ISP's uh, claimed internet speed, they may say 100 megabits per second, and you go, great, I'm fine. But then you are at the other side of the house from your router, and there's some walls in the way, and there's a big metal fridge, and all these things that can interfere with the signal. So by the time you're there on your laptop, you're actually only getting one or two megabits per second, so that can be problematic. So if you just go to you know Google, google.com, and then do a thing, just do speed test, mm-hmm. and it will do a little utility within Chrome, and it'll do a speed test for you, and you can see your internet speeds. Okay. And then the other thing to consider is don't just go with what your internet service provider says as your speed, because they will be quoting download speeds, which is great if you want to watch movies, but it's terrible if you are trying to present to other people because it's the upload speed that's important. And upload speed is often an order of magnitude less than your download speed. So check that. Okay. And a lot of these platforms, the, the Zoom, the Teams, the WebEx, all of those, all recommend that you have a minimum of two megabits per second upload speed, which doesn't sound like a lot, but sometimes can be. So check that. And if your room that you're in doesn't give you that magic two megabits per second upload speed, consider trying to move or move your router if you can, or get a wired cable that you know, runs through the house or whatever that happens to be. The, the number of people that I've seen requesting on you know, various local groups here, does anyone have a 50 foot ethernet cable that I can borrow, for example, suggests that more and more people are realizing that this is a problem. Yeah, I decided to connect directly to the ethernet um, versus using my routers here. Yeah, 
And it's just, it's, it's so much more reliable if you can do it. You know, Wi-Fi can drop. Not very often. It might be once a month, but it'll be the one time that you're speaking to that critical decision maker and she's only got 10 minutes because she's really busy and now you've lost it. So right. it, it, it may well be worth doing, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, once you've got the, the internet kind of sorted, you then think about the more obvious things. Um, and I'd say that audio is probably your first go-to. A lot of people like to consider video because, of course, you can see it. But I think audio is more important because that's more jarring. If the audio connection is poor, then people aren't going to listen to you as much. It's generally what you're saying that's going to be most important. So the ideal would be to get yourself a decent microphone. Now, with the rise of podcasting, you can get really good quality microphones really very inexpensively, you know. 30 40 50 dollars or something they're all available from amazon but a usb dedicated microphone would be great if now, you don't want microphone that microphone are you using right now um, i'm using a a blue yeti nano microphone so it's on a on a boom arm just kind of um, over my laptop here so it's kind of out the way and i like that because then i'm you know uninterrupted on a video feed um, if you have a virtual background your headset here can start to cause all sorts of artifacts and things which is, isn't great and, and i should have asked you how i sound yeah, yeah great absolutely but again you've got the same kind of setup have you well, no, I'm using, right now we're using the uh, the audio from the, my Mac. Let me just double check that. Built-in microphone, right. So I'm using the Macs because when I've tried to use Logitech on the camera that we're using, yeah. people have told me it doesn't sound as good as my Mac's microphone. But I do have... You know, and I do have a couple other microphones. Maybe I should try that. Okay, mm -hmm. go, all right, good. I mean, it just there's a, there's a certain quality to the to the audio. So I mean, in reality, a USB microphone I think sounds much richer. It's more radio like. It gives a, a certain kind of crispness and and depth to it, which you don't get from an inbuilt microphone. A headset microphone will usually do the same thing. Most right. modern computers will have a decent inbuilt microphone setup. So I've got a, a Microsoft Surface Pro. It's got a dual microphone array on it. Actually, it's pretty good. But what you want to avoid is the kind of laptops, the you know, the, the standard things that corporate IT might might send out, like a, an old-fashioned Dell that might be, you know, several years old in terms of its design, and it's got a single little pinhole microphone that's, you know, down by the USB port or something. And then there's interference there with it, or the, the noise of the computer fan is right there, and, and it doesn't yeah. sound great. So if, yeah. if, you know, do a test, as you have done, Ted, and see what people think of it, it can sound really good, but at the same time, maybe not. It's also much more liable to pick up noises and vibrations. So if you're typing on a keyboard right next to that microphone, that's going to sound really bad for the people on the other end of the phone. And so I've, heard people, I've heard people do that. Yeah, exactly. And it, it's just, it's really distracting. It's not, yeah. not a great experience. But I mean, any of those things are generally fine. Ideally, a USB microphone, whether that's a, a dedicated one or a headset, and if necessary, the, the one that's built in. What I wouldn't recommend you do is to use a phone because the calling quality is generally going to be poorer than digital voice over IP. And also the microphones on them aren't as good. So consider that, you know, don't just dial in because they're generally poorer. And actually, whilst we're talking about audio and phones, don't forget to mute your phone. Right. Now, you're, you're used to being in a corporate business environment, and that's fine, and everyone mutes their cell phone, their mobile, which is not a problem. But now you're at home, and you may have one of those archaic things called a landline, and that will probably have loads of robots trying to call you to sell you insurance or whatever it happens to be, um, give you energy rebates and that kind of stuff. So try to mute your landline if you can or move the phone out of your um, space if you're um, doing that just so that there's again none of these kind of audio distractions happening in the background i put my landline phone in a box out in the other room yeah. and shut it yeah. because we do get some spam calls and yeah. i can turn it off real quickly but you would still hear it exactly yeah and it's just it's one of those little bits ringing and they are loud and it will be picked up really uh, kind of strongly by your microphone so right. be careful with that okay <laughs> and then so you've got your internet you've got your audio video is probably next um and here i'm much happier with people using the the built-in camera so you can use the you know the, the kind of the logitech things and these are these are great as you say don't rely on the 
audio in them because it's not perfect. So that kind of thing is is fine. Um, but trying to find them nowadays is really difficult. <laughs> you know, yes. you'll spend a hundred, hundred and fifty dollars or so on one if you can find them, and you probably can't. Maybe they're starting to come back in stock now. So just be a little bit aware of that. Um, but if you have uh, the inbuilt micro, the inbuilt camera on your laptop, and it's a reasonably modern laptop, it will probably be fine. The key thing with any kind of camera is to make sure that you've got good lighting because even the best camera in poor lighting will be terrible. You can get, you know, these kind of slightly more professional ring-like type setups, which are great. You know, you can put it on a little stand just in front of your laptop and it gives you a nice kind of glow um, all the way around. It's uniform lighting. It means that you're not in shadow. But if you don't want that, and again, it's difficult to find, they're not expensive, maybe 20 or $30 or something. But a nice thing to do is get two... Um, table lamps, two bedside lamps, and put them either side of your computer so that you're then lit from two sources. It's a nice, gentle, soft light rather than something that's harsh and glaring like, you know, fluorescent tubes and stuff. And that will just give you sufficient lighting that, that works really well. And try to make sure that you are well lit and that there isn't, you know, strong light coming from the background. Don't sit with your back to a window, for example, because then you're going to be in shadow right. relative and the contrast is going to be terrible. If there are lights on, you know, table lamps, floor lamps or something, turn those off. Um, if you've got ceiling lights and your camera is angled up a bit, make sure the camera isn't pointing into those. So so stuff like that, consider the lighting, but two table lamps either side, really easy. And then yeah, just yeah, position uh, yourself nicely in the frame and just make sure you're looking at the camera is really it. In, in where I'm working from right here, um, I have pretty decent light, I think, from yeah, yeah. Degree, but um, there's a light directly above me, and I had to block it with a big piece of cardboard yeah. coming out from my bookshelves because it created this big, shiny place on my forehead, mm -hmm. and to eliminate that super bright reflection, I have this really ugly piece of cardboard above <laughs> me, <laughs> but it works. And that's it. It's like, you know, the, 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 there's some wonderful memes on Twitter and stuff now where it's uh, people taking photos of themselves for how they seem to the external world on a webcam and then a, a wide shot of all the stuff that's around them that's out of shot. Uh, and it's exactly things like that. You do little patch jobs like that just to be able to, to get through this. It doesn't really matter that much, as long as it doesn't bother or concern you. Now, that ring camera that you mentioned, I've seen people use that on uh, TV programs, like news programs. One of their advisors will be using it. And I frequently see what I call ring eye. Yeah. And I personally, I find that sort of distracting. But I've also seen some small square lights that you can attach to your computer that create a warm glow that... Yeah, I mean, it's the, it's the same idea. It's, yeah. it's, it's a multi-point light source is what you want because okay. a single source, just a single bulb, will, will cast some of your face in shadow. So right. the nice thing about the ring lights here is that it's essentially got multi-point. It's kind of all over the place. It's not going to give you that shadow point. But yeah, I mean, the idea of having just two table lamps either side of you is also good because it's multi-point. And so the, the, the square camera gets that you attach, or light bits again that you attach is fine. Also remember, just in terms of the distractions there, you're seeing people on the news and it's on your you know, 40, 50, 60 inch TV screen and they're, they're filling it and so you can see all the details. In a session like this, you're generally gonna be viewed on a laptop or even a phone. Your picture is gonna be significantly smaller as a result, so I suspect people see won't quite see those those uh, so just yeah screen sizing is important right 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 okay and then the um the background like is this too busy behind me everyone loves to have uh, bookshelves at the moment it seems to to show off their credibility and i think it's great because it's you know clearly you know what you're talking about or uh, you can have lego in the background either either way is fine uh, you've got professional and you've got not so professional but um, it's whatever you're comfortable with generally speaking i'd go with something that is um, not distracting. I think the nice thing about a bookshelf is that it's obvious that it's a bookshelf. People aren't going to be looking at all of the little details and things, which is great. So your background there is, it's nice. It's kind of 
corporate in a way, professional rather in a way, because it's got all the books and things with the personal family touches and whatnot in there. So it looks and feels good. And if you're in a in a home office, chances are that whatever is in your background, as long as it's not packing boxes and things, is going to be fine. But if you're at the kitchen table because you don't have anywhere else to do it, then seeing pots and pans and microwaves and all of that kind of stuff out there may be more problematic. But remember that a lot of these platforms now, Zoom, Teams, all of them have virtual camera settings. So you've now got this ability to isolate yourself from whatever busy background you have and put on a more corporate um, background. And so a lot of organizations now are sending these things out. So it's like here, you've got your, your corporate background. The problem with this kind of thing, though, is that there are artifacts. So yes. just you here, just me here like this now is fine because you can kind of see me. But if I start waving my hands about, you see there's artifacts around my fingers. If I bring them up a bit, it doesn't always recognize my fingers or they disappear. And this is that point I made before about the headphones is that if you do have headphones here, the algorithms for these virtual backgrounds are to recognize people not headphones because they assume that's the background and so it kind of it blurs around your head quite a lot which again i find a bit distracting so right. be a little bit aware of that but it is a nice way of doing it and, and built into a lot of the programs that offer this are um like really nice professional shots of nice office spaces and things so it feels natural it doesn't look as as kind of uh, odd as a, a beach picture or a, you know corporate branded template with the company logo and stuff in the background which just feels to me a little bit odd so something that feels natural and feels good i think is is fine as long as you are comfortable sharing it with people right i've seen some people be in a meeting setting where it's just purely a blank wall behind them and i find that a bit stark and yeah in a way, distracting by itself. It comes off a little cold. I, I'd agree with you. I think that, that that can be problematic. It's maybe better than, you know, the, the kitchen table, perhaps. Yes. But, uh, yeah, at the same time, it's it's not great. Also, the, the lighting is probably not going to be very good there. The sound quality isn't going to be very good there. You might, if you have a choice, you might want to consider what kind of room you're in. So if you have a room with nothing in it then the audio is going to be really echoey because you're just going to be bouncing off the walls and so if you can be in a room with soft furnishings ideally and stuff there then the soft furnishings will absorb some of the sound and the stuff will deflect it all over the place so it kind of it dissipates it and that means that you don't get quite the echoey tinny quality even with a good microphone um, which would normally pick that up so don't just go into you know the office and you're the only one there and sit in a conference room where there's nothing else because now that it's not filled with people it's going to be quite echoey um, okay. so have something in there just to to improve audio quality ideally and and you may have if you listen to the radio often people you know radio presenters are now talking about how they are doing this broadcast from their closet or from under a duvet and they mention it because it's novel to them but the reason they do it is because you've got all that softness there to absorb all of the echoes so you get much better quality sound okay Anything else about a virtual studio? Uh, I don't think so. I mean, those are the, the core things. If you can get them right, your internet connection speed, decent audio, semi-decent video, and then making sure that you're comfortable with the background and the room is not kind of too echoey, it feels like that's going to get you pretty much all the way there. Anything else may be lower diminishing returns to, to try to do. Okay. And we've talked about some of the logistical considerations like the um, bandwidth and stuff like that. What about platforms? I suspect that most people are going to be um, having their platform chosen for them by corporate IT. That's I, true. I imagine That's true. that you know, you're a sales rep, for example, with the best one in the world, you're not going to be able to choose whether you're using Z Zoom or WebEx or Teams. It's like you have to use it. But, okay. but most of them that you heard of 
are generally fairly open. I know that after the security issues that Zoom had a few months ago, some organizations stopped accepting it. So maybe in medical environments, some hospital networks will say, no, we can't do Zoom. But I think that the security issues with Zoom were largely down to Zoom not promoting what they already had. And so then you get this kind of free-for-all going on. And now they've just made it much more obvious that they have these security practices in place uh, and you can protect it. But um, Teams is usually pretty good. Uh, Zoom is very good. Go to webinar, go to meeting, um, WebEx. I mean, they're all... They're all great platforms. The key is just making sure your audience can get into it. And if it is a critical meeting, you know, maybe it's with uh, the top clinician in a uh, in a facility, or there's lots of different people that you're going to. Maybe try to check with someone who's friendly in that client organization. Maybe the the admin that set it up, or your sponsor there, or whatever that they can use that platform. Don't just send out the meeting and assume that they'll be able to access it, just in case there's some issue there. And then you know your platform, know your tool, uh, so that you are familiar with any problems that they might have getting in. Oh, I can't make it work. Oh, well, you need to click this and this and this. And so you're guiding through that process. Likewise, when they when they come in, they may be um, uh, unmuted. And you know, you've not got the settings right to be able to mute them when they start up. So maybe you can have an intro piece, which is just, you know, hi everyone, just welcome. I'm gonna just briefly take you through Zoom if you're not familiar with it. Down in the bottom left-hand corner, you'll be able to mute and unmute yourself. You can change your microphone, turn your video on if you want to, stuff like that. Over on the right-hand side, we've got the chat panel. Just type anything you want there and I can answer them, but also unmute yourself at any time, happy to chat. You know, whatever it happens to be, that are your rules to help them 30 seconds or so of that kind of intro may be useful. Don't make it patronizing, but at the same time, it's probably helpful to people that aren't familiar with the platform. Right, and going back to preparation, it could be wise to have a brief interaction or virtual so-called call with somebody in the organization, your target organization, just to make sure everything does work in advance and you don't run into a problem that particular day. Um, And then another thing you and I talked about as we were preparing is a backup plan. So we were both making sure we had our phone numbers, our cell phone numbers, in case something went down and we had to communicate. Additionally, if you had perhaps one or two or three people on the presenting side, and let's say one person was the main presenter, I guess you should have the backup plan that if the main presenter goes out and drops out of the the virtual presentation or the virtual call, then the other people know that they have to pick up the slack. Yeah, absolutely. So so that plan of, of the backup is really important um, right. to know all of those bits. But also taking it further, if you are in a fortunate position to be able to have other people from your team uh, kind of co-present with you, use that to your advantage. So as I said at the start, one of the problems with online is just that lack of feedback, that lack of response from your audience. And a lot of times um, meetings, particularly if they're more than like five or 10 minutes, can be, I think, problematic because it it can be a bit of a monologue you know it's just you talking all the time so being able to break it up a bit with other people just is great so you know Ted and I for example now you you and I are talking but for anyone viewing this it should feel a bit more of a conversation yes I'm doing a lot of the talking here but the the questions that that Ted is asking are kind of there to to be advocates almost for you as the viewer as the audience to break things up a bit so that it's not just me talking and you won't be surprised um, to hear that this is all planned so we know exactly what we're going to be talking about and all these questions are planned in advance and that's the kind of thing that you should be doing with your team as well so you know who's going to be presenting on what topic or what questions they can ask even if it's just to let you as the main presenter talk about the next bit so that it kind of breaks this thing up. And then if there are lots of people on the, uh, the other side from the audience, maybe you have everyone on mute 
So you can have one person from your team monitoring the chat, for example, or the Q&A so that they can then feed you relevant questions or interrupt. As the presenter, especially if you're on camera now, what you probably don't want to be doing is looking like off to another screen to see a chat or to have a look down here at another chat because that just looks terrible. And you don't right. want to be reading the chat because that's now kind of going to distract you and it's then going to distract your audience. So having someone there to say, oh, you know, Richard, there's this interesting thing here. What do you think about that at the appropriate time is then great because it saves you a lot of that awkwardness. Okay. Um, and then presentation content. You know, let's talk about the power of a well-thought-out PowerPoint. Mm. Um, I mentioned right at the, no, not right at the start, but earlier on that I thought there were two things that were really critical for successful online meetings. One is eliminating distraction and having the right setup for it. And then as you say, the, the kind of the content, doing that right, I think is really valuable. So again, I just wanted to show you some examples of, of what I thought worked really well here to kind of bring these things to life. So what to me is, is interesting is the use of visuals. So I think that visuals are really important in an online meeting environment to create compelling content for a couple of reasons. One is that they look better. You know, if you're there and you're presenting something, pretty much the main thing that people are looking at is your slide content or whatever visuals you're sharing. And so if that looks terrible, it doesn't reflect well on your brand, on your approach, on your style, on your professionalism. So something that looks reasonable is good. It doesn't have to be professionally designed. There are lots of quick and easy ways to make things look nice, but do make them look a little bit nice. Large scale images in the background, for example, work well. A consistent color palette works well. Using a grid structure works well. Relatively simple techniques that don't take a lot of time to do just means that you can come up with nice looking slides. Then you should also use visuals. So get rid of that wall of text, that death by PowerPoint, because that's for documents. And use visuals and diagrams to be able to explain and reinforce your messages. And then also use animation. So I'm showing a slide right here, for example, where for the most part, you know, 80% of it is blank. There's just one um, syringe on the left-hand side. And now it's pretty obvious that there will be something else coming up but that's going to be in a moment when I click and I'm using PowerPoint animations just to pace the flow of information so that you as the audience are not overwhelmed by loads of things coming up. But also it allows me as the presenter to talk about this one thing that you can see and everyone is focused on the same thing at the same time, listening to the explanation of that thing so you have a shared experience. And then you can click and the next bit comes up. And then you can click in the next bit and click in the next bit and so on. But you're using the animation there to pace the flow of information to coordinate everyone. And then you can also use animation for storytelling, this idea of, you know, showing something happening or contrasting a before state with a, in this case, a complex process with high cost, and then simplifying things down by removing a lot of that unnecessary stuff and then reducing the cost and having some kind of punchline there to talk about the, the kind of the key benefit for it. So there are lots of really useful things that you can do just using standard PowerPoint that allow you to create great looking professional slides, but critically that communicate effectively by using these visuals and diagrams and animations. Now, um, Ted, you had uh, uh, Dave uh, Peretti on a couple of weeks ago on the yes. podcast to talk about some of these techniques as well. And if you've not listened or watched to that, I strongly recommend you go back a couple of weeks in the archive and look at it because he gives you lots of really good examples. But one of the examples he talked about is a relatively new feature in PowerPoint called Morph, which is a transition. And I just wanted to build up on some of the things that he'd showed you just to show you kind of what's possible in PowerPoint nowadays if you've you know, not touched it for a while and also show you how quickly you can create some of this stuff. Because although you want it to look good, you don't have more time to be able to make it all. So Morph is this really interesting transition that allows you to move seamlessly from one slide to another. 
So I'm just in standard PowerPoint here, and I'm gonna to go to the Home tab on the ribbon and add in a shape. So let's just add in a basic square like that, okay? Then, using the thumbnails on the left-hand side here, you can select the slide you're on and duplicate it using Control and D. And then on the second slide, take that box and move it over to the right-hand side. So, so far, so basic. And you've now got these two slides with a box on the left and a box on the right. If you then go to the Transitions tab on the ribbon, over on the left-hand side, you'll see this relatively new transition called Morph. And what it does is it recognises that these two boxes are the same on both slides. And in slideshow mode, it will now seamlessly transition from one slide to the next. Now, that's pretty cool beans. But if you then think, OK, well, I've got it to move, but what if I were to shrink it down and maybe change the color. Then PowerPoint goes, okay, it's the same box, but in a different place and a different size and a different color. I can handle that. And it seamlessly morphs from one to the next. Now that is a parlor trick. It's not very useful for storytelling, but it shows you how quickly you can do these things. Why is that useful to you as a presenter who's doing something online? Well, say, for example, you have a really complicated process like this here. It's a you know, big, long onboarding process for something, lots of detail going on. It's a great printout. It's a lovely PDF. It's a wonderful infographic. But it's a terrible slide because in an online meeting, there's just no way that people will be able to see all of this detail. It's you know, all crammed in on the slide there. There's far too much. And even in a large room, you know, a large screen, you wouldn't be able to see it. But in a laptop, in a window, on a Teams meeting, a Zoom meeting or something, no chance. But you can say, here's our overall process. And now what I want to do is take you through the strategy and planning. And you use that more transition to kind of zoom into a portion of the graphic. And then you can move across it to look at the launch event and down to training alignment. And you're now using this morph tool to kind of move around the diagram to show people relevant details and pieces of it. And then in this case, at the end, you zoom out again and you can see the whole thing. And so in edit mode, to show you how this works, you know, you've got here on one slide the entire process diagram fitting on the slide. But if you zoom out a bit, you'll see what's going on here. There the diagram fits on the entire working area of the slide. And on the next slide, it's exactly the same diagram, but now just much larger, with only a small portion of it visible there on the slide. And so it's this morph transition is saying, okay, it's the same diagram, but just much bigger and moved and it will automatically do that movement and that growing and shrinking for you very simply. But did you have, but to do this, did you have to take an, an image of a section of this process so you could turn it into a slide? Nope. Or is there a way to grab that, grab a section of it and turn yeah. it into a slide? So let, well, let's do it live. Okay, so yeah. I've just duplicated the slide. I've moved it further in the deck so you can see that this is all brand new. So here I have this diagram. It's made up of individual pictures and individual text boxes and lines yeah. and icons and all. So, you know, fairly easy. What I'm going to do is take this slide using the thumbnails on the left, duplicate it using Control and D. So you've got two of them. Yep. And on the second slide, select the entire diagram. And I'm just going to group it because it makes it much easier to resize. So you can use the keyboard shortcut Control and G. But it's also on the Home tab on the ribbon under Arrange on the right-hand side. And it's Group here. Now what I'm going to do is just zoom out a bit and then increase the size of this diagram, this group, so that it's now much larger. And so only a small portion of it is going to fill the working area of the slide there like that. Move this across a bit so that it's now just going to fill in that little piece of it there. And I'm just going to increase the size of the text so that it's now more kind of to scale with what you would expect, something like that there. Then I'm going to ungroup it using Control and G, Control Shift and G. And now you can see I've got these setups here of the initial slide where the entire diagram is there filling that one slide and the second slide where I've got the entire diagram, but most of it is off the slide because it's much larger. And you go to the Transitions tab on the ribbon, and you choose Morph over here on the left, and now you've got that sequence where it goes from one slide, and then it morphs to the next, and everything kind of moves automatically. Okay, and the group command 
kept everything in place. It kept everything in proportion, yes. So it's yes. just very easy to be able to do. If you've got multiple objects like that, you don't yeah. have to do it. You could do it individually. It's just that in this case, I want to give the uh, the impression that you are zooming into something, magnifying it, and moving around exactly the same thing. Um, but you could, if you wanted to, move things around. It, it's totally fine. It depends what your story is. What are you trying to do here to kind of make that work? So that's the right. idea. That's really great. That's a great uh, example of how that works. Yeah. Can I show you something more, though? Because I think you can take it like really far if you want to. But again, it's all very quick, very easy. It's just getting your head around the idea. So here I've got another example. So say you wanted to do something where, again, you're zooming in, but you don't want to lose the rest of the diagram. So here I've got a, a picture. It's a beach picture, but it could be anything you like that's detailed or complex. It could be, you know, patient flows around a hospital. It could be, you know, workflows around the lab. It could be the details of a particular device or instrument or whatever it happens to be. Here I've got this whole diagram, and now I want to create a magnification lens to focus in on just small portions of it, and you can see here that it's now magnifying an individual bit while still keeping the rest of the content there for context. And again, this is all achieved using Morph very easily. And again, to show you how quick it is, I'm going to go to completely blank slide in PowerPoint. It's got a picture placeholder here, so I can click the picture placeholder in the middle, choose to add a picture, I'll choose the beach picture again, there it is. And now with that, I've got this beach picture on the slide, I'm going to copy and paste it, so I've got two of them, and then line those two pictures up on top of each other, select the top picture here, and then use the crop tool, so the picture format tab on the ribbon, and then crop over on the right-hand side, and crop that down using these black grab handles to focus in on just one area of the image. So say the pool up here on the left. And so now that gives you this kind of cropped version of the pool. Now I don't like it being rectangular like that. So you can actually change the type of crop. I'm going to go back to the picture format tab on the ribbon and crop over on the right hand side. But this time choose this little drop down menu. And here you can choose crop to shape which allows you to crop to any of the standard shapes in PowerPoint. Now be wary of doing this because you don't want hearts and smiley faces and stuff because that looks pretty terrible. But here you can choose just an oval and now you've got a nice kind of ovalish type crop. Again, I'm not a massive fan of the oval, so now you've got to do one more step, which is go back to the picture format tab and crop and this time choose aspect ratio on the right hand side here. And now you can choose to crop to any of these standard aspect ratios, including one to one square. And now you have a perfect circular crop around this pool bit, for example. Now, if you take that and you make it larger, and then you put some kind of outline around it, either a line or in this case, I'm gonna to go to picture effects here and just choose a shadow around the outside, just there. That now gives you the sense of this kind of, you know, floating zoom lens, if you like, like a you know, magnification lens. And so if you now were to do the same trick, duplicate the slide using Control and D on the thumbnails, take this zoomed in picture, move it somewhere else over the slide, say over the red umbrella here on the right hand side like that. Obviously it looks odd to have a zoomed in pool in the middle of the beach, but... If you open up crop again, when it comes to cropping pictures in PowerPoint, many people think that it's just about cutting away the picture. And it kind of is, but it also kind of isn't. I prefer to think of crop as a, as a window through which you see the picture underneath. And so here, if I zoom out a bit, you'll see there's all the picture still just grayed out. And so what you can do is instead of using the black grab handles to resize the crop window, you can move the image within that crop window to focus on something else like the red umbrella. And now if you apply the morph transition to the second slide, PowerPoint says, okay, this is the same picture on both slides, but in a different place and with a different crop view. And what it will now do is it will seamlessly morph from one to the other. And because the rest of the picture hasn't been removed in that, it will actually go through all of the various bits in between to give you this effect of like a magnification lens moving across the image. So it's a great way to very quickly 
focus attention on part of any kind of complex image. So as I said, it could be you know, a complex picture of a product or a workflow, but it could be a chart or a table or some kind of screenshot where in a Zoom meeting, because the, you know, the laptop people are seeing is small, uh, you know, you're there, but you want to be able to focus attention on something, it works really well. Nice. And so that kind of thing works really nicely. But, you know, to bring it back to something more medical and not, you know, beaches that no one can go to, what about this? So we're talking about pulmonary embolisms. And so we've got a picture of a person here and then you're using a different picture over the top, same technique, but a different picture now to show how that might start with, um, you know, clot formation around the knees, for example, in the vascular system, and then how that will move up through the system, how that clot can kind of move. And then it enters into um, the major vessel and then that can go into the lungs and that causes you know pulmonary embolism that's you know really dangerous that same idea is now explaining this complex concept very quickly and very simply just using two pictures so here are the two pictures here one there one there you've got the regular person and this vascular one we've done the vascular one so i'll show you the muscular system instead i'm going to line these things up on top of each other I'm going to take this muscular system, use the crop tool, just crop that to the top there like that so you've got a thin band, duplicate the slide using Control and D, use the crop tool again to now recrop this down to the bottom like that. And then you apply the morph transition to that. And now if you look at it in slideshow mode, you've kind of got the latest body scanning technology, for example, as you're scanning through all those different bits and seeing the musculature underneath. Yeah. So this this morph tool is just it's so useful to be able to tell complex stories very quickly and very easily. And I'd strongly recommend that everyone just checks it out. Now, as I said, it's just it's a brief demonstration of some of the things that you can do to create, you know, really effective presentations. Definitely check out the session um, that Ted did with, with Dave a couple of weeks ago for more of those kinds of things as well. And if you want to, shameless plug alert, uh, there are plenty more tips and tutorials on creating dynamic visual slides on the Bright Carbon website as well. And, and the reason it's so important is because when slides are the major focus, they need to do more of the heavy lifting. And that means your slides not only have to look good and change frequently to keep attention levels high, they also need to support what's being said to aid understanding. If people don't understand what you're saying or if the slides don't help them to understand, they'll start looking at other things. So that's why I thought it would just be useful to show some of those examples and, and give you a sense of it. And just actually to kind of bring it all a bit full circle in terms of using the slides and the video and whatnot and the things that we've talked about, I would recommend that you use a video of a presenter, but critically, not where it distracts from your slides. Now, if you've got access to a green screen or can video cast yourself presenting in front of your slides, then great. And interestingly, the technology for that is coming. The latest release of, of Microsoft Teams encourages that. And Zoom is starting to work on that as well, but it's not great yet but I'm sure they'll do it. But, you know, typically for most environments, I would recommend that you use webcams for introductions, for conversations, you know, like we've been doing today, to answer questions, but also consider turning your camera off when you're presenting slides, because it means then there's just the kind of the core focus of what you should actually be doing. In a much smaller meeting, you also need to consider that turning on your webcam creates a social pressure for your audience to do the same thing. So as a courtesy, make it really clear that you're planning a video meeting when making the arrangements, because otherwise people may turn up and they're not prepared for it. And that's not, again, something you want to be doing. You want people to be really comfortable with it. Some online platforms, as we've demonstrated before, allow you to set a picture as a background image. And so that's great if you want something that you know, hides the mess or is a bit more corporate but you might also be tempted to hack it a bit and upload static slides as your background. But trying to display your slideshow like that's really high risk because it involves lots of changes and fiddling, which really isn't ideal. But it can work well if you really want to bring up visuals for a, a Q&A setup, for example, where a single graphic might help facilitate a longer discussion. But as we talked about before with the preparation, be aware that doing that may be problematic because of the platform you're using. So with Zoom, for instance, everyone is always in a 16 by 9 widescreen setup. 
But Teams, which is kind of probably the next most popular one, is a dynamic view of the presenter. And so there you might be cut off so that it's just your head and you're now portrait mode instead of landscape mode. And now people can't see the graphics. So be aware of what people are likely to see based on the platform that you're using. And remember, of course, it's not just about the slides and the technical setup for a virtual studio. When you're presenting online, you need to avoid sounding monotonous. You know, people often like to script things out, especially if they're doing something that's high stakes. It's a webinar, stuff like that. But you can't get away with reading a script when you're on camera. So that's really problematic. I wouldn't try to do it. It looks pretty obvious. And to be honest, very few people can deliver even the best script in a natural way. So speak from notes. Yes, absolutely. It doesn't have to be the slickest, most polished thing. It doesn't have to be like the newsreaders. You can glance away occasionally, but try to have a, a more natural conversation. Try to uh, be responsive to your audience. Try to think about things that are tailored to them and try not to read directly from any kind of content. Right, absolutely. Very good. Well, we covered a lot of ground. Yeah, I just I thought it would be useful just to share some of those bits there at the end, yeah. Sure, and I noticed that you were turning off your camera as you went to slides uh, to keep it from being on the on the side and seeing any action on the side, which I think you're right. It does help bring some focus to the slide itself. Yeah, it's just like, so with the best will in the world, I'd love everyone to see me all the time, but it's like I'm not adding anything when the slide content there, especially when it's technical or where there's demo stuff going on. Like me moving around and, and talking just isn't, isn't great, particularly when it's a small window there, because now you've got different fields of view that people have to look at. You're kind of moving back and forth all the time and it's, it's annoying. Or even if not, it's like I'm trying to look at the main bit here, but there's something off there which is just distracting and irking you a bit. So just allow your audience to focus on what's important, which is either the slides or it's a, you know, a diagram or a PDF or a video that you've got playing. And when you don't have that, don't just put up a generic title slide or something. Come back to video because now you can more personally engage with people. And if you can, try to mix it up a bit as well. So it's not just a solid block of 20 or 30 minutes of slides. It's not just a solid block of video like this. Try to break it down into small chunks so that you can do that kind of thing where it's, you know, five minutes of slides here, three minutes of conversation here, especially in a larger environment, maybe a poll or a quiz or something, as long as it's meaningful, those kinds of things can work really well. Just mixing it up is another great way to re-engage people, but make sure that everything has a purpose and nothing is there for the sake of it. You don't want things to be distracting. And one thing I notice about you when you're presenting is that you are relatively animated, which comes across really nicely. And that is a point that another one of my guests, I don't know, maybe six, eight episodes ago, Nick, Mor uh, Nick Morgan, mm, yay. Uh, he um, talked about having to animate yourself more to the camera because much of our imagery is sort of softened and and we don't have the same impact that we have when we're present with somebody. So mm -hmm. he was talking about learning how to dance with a camera. And you mm -hmm. think about newscasters, how they're always changing their, the angle of their head a little bit mm -hmm. when they're talking and so on and so forth. And I've been trying to learn how to do that when I do parts of my video casts and so on. It's not real easy when you're sort of a straight shooting guy like myself, but I've tried to become more animated. And yeah, but it is, it's, it is that, that old cliche of you turn it up to 11 because there is something that, uh, that the camera takes away from you, I think, when you are presenting. The most kind of charismatic person can sound much more muted on a camera, on a you know, video cast compared with in person so that's yes. important but also just for for you as the presenter to move around a bit changes your tone of voice so even if you're not on camera trying to move and trying to gesticulate and giving yourself some energy changes your your vocal tones quite a lot many people suggest that you stand up as well to do it because again that changes how you speak and 
and can be really very valuable to give you more energy to make it something that is engaging for your audience to listen to. There are potential logistical problems with standing up like, you know, can you get a, a riser for your desk or is your laptop going to be balanced on a whole stack of books and then does it fall over in the middle? And, you know, if you've got a wired headset and you've got a laptop that's towering up there and you move a bit too much, does it pull the laptop off? So like, be wary of it. But if you can stand up, get a standing desk or something, then again, that just adds a lot to, to what you're saying and also then what people are viewing if you're on camera. Absolutely. And Nick Morgan, when you're talking to him virtually, he is always standing up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, if, if, um, you, if you have the setup for it, it's brilliant to do. I wouldn't say that you have to do it because that can cause more problems than it solves if you're not doing this all the time. But, you know, Nick right, is right. A, a professional, and this is also his profession as well. So it's like, you know, double double standards there, which is why he yes. does it. But, but exactly that, yeah. Okay, very good. Anything else that you have to add before we wrap this up? This has really been terrific. We've covered a lot. I think just just try. None of this stuff is hard. So um, you've heard from Dave, you've heard from Nick. There's lots of other bits and pieces as well. Just try it out. Also, don't think that it has to be perfect first time out. So more, for example, there's lots of different things that you can try there. Or the Zoom interaction techniques, there's lots of things you can try there. The key is to try it. Try to get an extra... 15, 20 minutes or so when preparing for a presentation to see if you can do something better with it. Ideally, choose the low-hanging fruit, the stuff that you can pick from kind of really quickly and really easy to make an impact on, and or the stuff that you're going to be reusing over again. So it's effort that you can then compound later on. And then over the course of the next few weeks, months, you know, maybe years, who knows, maybe you can start to build up more of a collection of stuff and try it, you know, see what it is. Maybe try to, to do it occasionally with some colleagues so that you're not trying brand new things with people um, kind of externally, but give it a go and then make it incremental changes um, as you're, you're building up all of your content and your repertoire for this and the, the way that you're interacting with people. And then if something doesn't work, maybe assess whether or not it's right for you or right for your environment. It may not be perfect. Maybe you need to do other things too. So um, do be uh, a little cynical of, of all of this in a way and, and like test it out. Be scientific about it. See whether you what you think works and then abandon the stuff that doesn't work for you. Okay, very, very good. Well, Richard, thank you so much for being with us today. This is really terrific. Like I said, we covered a lot of ground. People have a lot to think about. They need to go back and re-watch parts of this so that they can try some of these techniques and and, and put them in practice. Yeah, absolutely. It's all, it's all there. It's all standard PowerPoint stuff in this case, or you know, standard webcams or microphones. It's really very easy. Um, it's now applying it and getting over that. Uh, I can't hear or see my audience issue, which is usually really hard. <laughs> right, right, right. Well, like I said, say to a lot of my guests, so, you know, I reserve the right to ask you back sometime in the future. Maybe we'll have to regroup in six months to a year from now and see what's happened in the meantime. Would be delighted to. Thank you. All right. Take care. Thank you so much. See you soon. Yep. Richard just did a great job of pulling together the ecosystem of successful virtual communication and presentations. Richard also wanted me to tell you about the free masterclass program that they have at the Bright Carbon website. A link to this particular page and other links will be in the show notes. Here is a challenge. While I think all of this is important, I'm going to challenge you today to implement just one tip or technique. Go grab a slide deck for one of your product presentations and just use the morph technique on one particular slide featuring a particular product feature and benefit and see what a difference it makes. Put all of these ideas into practice and go when you're weak. <laughs>